Hello and welcome to the podcast of Vineyard Church here in Maryville, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week, as well as our conversations episodes, which include interviews, special announcements, and in-depth teaching. You can visit vineyardchurch.us to learn more about us or to access the audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Welcome. I'm going to read to you now for a moment from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. Paul, writing to the churches in Galatia, says this, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we've said before, and I'll say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. For am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Wow. Let's take a minute to pray. Jesus, uh, please come and meet with us now as we look more deeply into your word. Uh, I ask that we be aware of your presence in this room. And man, if there's a message you want to get through to us, uh, help us to to hear it, to receive it, uh, to apply it. Do it in a way that would be glorifying to you. Father, uh, would you make us aware of your presence in this room? And we ask that your kingdom would come and your will would be done in this sanctuary even as it is in heaven. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so we are working our way through the book of Galatians. We're working on chapters one and two called Varnish. This is part three of this series. And even though it's part three, I'm just now pointing out the most obvious thing about this letter, which is that Paul is really mad when he writes it. He is in a foul mood. He is irate. Um, most of Paul's letters, and if you spend much time with Scripture in the New Testament in particular, then you know that this is true. Virtually all of the Apostle Paul's letters to churches start off with the better part of a chapter, him saying really flowery, wonderful, encouraging, lighthearted, uplifting things to the church that he's addressing. Not this one. This one, he gets the obligatory grace and peace out, and then he just goes swinging, like he dives in hard because he's frustrated. And he says, verse 6, I'm amazed, I'm amazed that you are so quickly turning away. I'm amazed, I am shocked, I am dumbfounded, I am stupefied, I am bumfuzzled, I am now just saying funny sounding words. But this, I'm trying to get, this is like an extreme word, like this word that Paul uses here that gets translated amazed, it's not any, found anywhere else in scripture, Paul doesn't use it anywhere else, like just here. He's, this is a, he's making a dramatic statement. He's saying, guys, I love you. You've got to be kidding me. And he's very careful to say that they're not just one or two degrees off. They're actually missing the point entirely. So verse six, again, I'm amazed you're turning so qu- that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you 
turning. Who's who called? Jesus. He goes, you're not just getting a little bit off track here. You're turning away from Jesus and turning to a different gospel, away from God and away from the gospel that has rescued them in the first place. They're rejecting Jesus and the core of who they are. Now, I'm going to point out what I think is pretty obvious. These new Christians, if you remember from week one, they're like caught up in this like doctrinal debate that's happening within the church. And there's a lot of heat on it. There's a lot of political stuff going on. And kind of everybody's mad at them. And they're trying to figure out how to, how to abide in the midst of all this controversy and tension. Here's the thing. They just capitulated a bit to one group who says they should do some other things. And they probably, in so doing, had no idea how far off they were getting. They didn't, have, they didn't just decide they were going to just go to a different Christ and a different gospel. They were under a lot of pressure. They didn't really know what to do. And they started to buckle. All right? So to give them some credit here, they didn't decide we're going to bail on Jesus. What they're probably thinking, really, if we kind of put ourselves in the situation, is they were probably thinking, let's just keep the peace. Okay, there are these Judaizers who say we should act like Jews in all the ways. And then there are the Romans and they've got a bunch of opinions about how we're supposed to live. And you know what? Here's the thing. We could just make everybody happy here. Okay, we could, we'll just, it's fine. We'll do all the Jewish things and all the Christian things. Okay, and then everybody will calm down. All right, so fine. So be it. We will. We're just going to go along to get along. That seems like a Jesus thing to do, right? Let's just go along to get along. That's what they're thinking. And then Paul jumps in and they were probably shocked when he, they hear him say it. He goes, no, 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 no. This is not one of those things that you compromise on. This is not one of those things that you hold loosely. And for the record, um, and if you're, again, if you're a Bible nerd, you kind of know uh, this about Paul. Um, Paul's not just like some angry, stubborn, unbending guy who digs his heels in about everything. That's not what's going on right now. He's not saying, oh, just be the type of rigid people who won't give an inch. Like, that's not what's going on. There are a lot of things that Paul, frankly, told Christians that they should lighten up about. There's a lot of times where he's like, guys, relax, deep breath. You're taking yourself way too seriously. Um, that's not a message that often gets through to a lot of Christians, but it's in there. Romans 14, he directly forbids people, don't argue over disputable matters. There's some stuff you guys aren't going to agree on. Relax. It's fine. Paul writes to Timothy and he says, hey, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies because, he says, they breed quarrels and, this is 2 Timothy 2, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. You guys ever known one of the Lord's servants who might possibly be classified as quarrelsome? I think probably... Probably you could list some. Don't make eye contact with anybody around you. But like, <laughs> I know some quarrelsome Christians. And Paul's like, uh-uh, that's not how we do it. On in, on in Romans, he goes on to say, you know, these people are around you. They're all cranked. There's different circumstances. But there are people all fired up about holy days and, and meat sacrifice to idols. And, and Paul's like, you know what? Fine. Go along to get along. He tells them, if you're going to just... Go with the flow. It's fine. Don't offend your brothers and sisters. If it's going to offend your brothers and sisters, Paul says, don't eat meat ever again. Just go full vegan. I don't care. Relax. So he says this. But here he doesn't. Here he jumps in and goes, no, no, no. But this is not one of those things. There, there are some doctrinal questions 
um, that make for really good conversation, some like friendly debate even. And then if you don't end up agreeing with one another on those things, then you just give them a hug and a high five and you just march on for Jesus like everything's fine. But there are other things that we do not dare compromise. And if you'll allow me to be transparent here, it's actually, sometimes it's really hard to know which one we're dealing with. It can be really hard to know when we're supposed to dig in our heels and when we're just supposed to like roll with it. It's hard to know. Um, There are some people uh, who try to prove how spiritual they are by dying on every hill because they're Bible people, by gollies. But really all they're doing in the process is proving how much of the Bible they don't understand. And in the process, they're also making Christians look like arrogant, closed-minded jerks. Don't do that. But on the other end of the spectrum, there there are other Christians who refuse to do what Paul is doing here. They refuse to sometimes put their foot down and say, you know what, some things actually aren't okay. And some things, frankly, aren't up for debate. Appreciate that you're open-minded. You can be too open-minded. G.K. Chesterton said something great about that. You're going to love it. He said this, merely having an open mind is nothing. The object of opening the mind, as of opening the mouth, is to shut it again on something solid. (laughs) Do not be so open-minded that your brains fall out. Thank you, G.K. Chesterton. Is that not just... Boom. I love the way British people talk. I just love it. <clears throat> so what I'm saying is there's a tension, and it's a good one. Let's abide. Let's like hold on to it for a second. The Bible tells you to lighten up. It also tells you to dig in your heels. So what's the answer? This is not always clear. In every case, Scripture and community. Scripture and community. Here's the thing. If you know the Bible really well, then almost all of these questions get answered in the studying of Scripture. You realize, oh no, this is a dig in the heels thing. Oh no, this is a lighten up thing. Okay? But then there are some things that are, remain tricky. That's hard to figure out. There are trickier ones. And in that case, we rely on our church family. We pray together. We weigh these things together. We discern this stuff together. That's how we know. But we know about this one. Paul is clearly dying on this hill. Let them be accursed. Strong language. Because he says, this is actually a different gospel. It's a different formulation of what salvation is. Now, verse 7. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This idea of of distorting the gospel. uh, It's a theme here. This is actually why the series is called Varnished. Um, People are taking the gospel and slapping coats of varnish on it, and distorting it, and making it look and feel like something different than what it really is. That's what's going on in Galatia. Um, According to Paul, Jesus has the capacity to transform everything. But these Judaizers, the group that's, you know, causing all the fights, um, They're saying that Jesus is a big deal. And Jesus has changed some things. And that's where Paul digs in and he insists, no, actually, Jesus has radically transformed everything. And more so than you can fathom. And for what it's worth, I actually think 
um, that, that heresy, and that's a heresy, I, I think it might be the most common form of heresy today, actually. People failing to recognize the capacity of Christ to transform everything. People thinking that they can come to Jesus and not be changed. Thinking that you can come to Jesus, be a Christian without being a disciple. Or thinking that our salvation doesn't actually transform us. That in walking with Jesus, we still have no real power over sin. That the best the gospel can really do is get us into heaven. The gospel is so much better than that. Which is why Paul like goes off the way that he does in the next few verses, 8 and 9. Read them again. Even if we or an angel from heaven, can you imagine? This is strong language. He's like, I don't care if there's stuff floating in the sky and beams of light. It doesn't matter. If they preach a gospel to you contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. You cannot accuse Paul of being unclear. And here's what he's saying. He's like, guys, people are undermining the gospel. The gospel is all we have. And when this happens, we don't sit by and watch. We intervene. And that's what he's doing. He's intervening with some pretty strong language. Verse 10. For I, for am I now trying to persuade people or God? Or am I striving to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Okay, so um, what's happening here is Paul is answering the accusation that has been brought against him by this, this Judaizer group within the church. Um, they're saying, actually, he's compromising. And so what, what this group is saying is that this Paul came up and he started selling easy believism. He just showed up and the gospel that he preaches sounds too good to be true. Christ has fulfilled the law, this ritualistic purity stuff, all of the, these outward expressions. They aren't as important as they once were. It's really, Paul says, a matter of sincerity, a matter of allegiance. It's not about rituals, not about traditions. And so this group of kind of Orthodox Jews, essentially, Judaizers within the church, they say, Paul's just saying that because he's a people pleaser. And, and what, he's, what they're really saying is that he's a coward. That's what he's saying. He's a coward. He's a people pleaser. He doesn't have the guts to tell the whole story. He doesn't have the courage to give the unfiltered truth. So he's just giving people a nice, warm, fuzzy gospel of love and grace and mercy without the challenging stuff like circumcision, etc. What's interesting is that's the accusation, but Paul flips that conversation on them. At the end of the letter, all the way at chapter 6 toward the end, verse 12, Paul says this, those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised. So that's the group that's causing the trouble. Here's what he says. But only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. In other words, they say I'm the coward, but the reverse is true. They're the cowards. Here, Paul is using a, a, a proven dialectic, one that maybe you have used at times in the past, um, they accuse him of something, and he says brilliantly, I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Bounces off me and sticks to you, right? 
uh, as he's just, he's flipping on them. What's really happening is that the group that's causing the trouble, they're feeling the pressure from people outside of the church. Remember that whole thing again, I can't restate it all, but if you go back and listen to part one, or if you remember part one, uh, there was this, this debate over this religious exemption that was just for the Jews, and the Christians were using that, and people were so upset about that. That's what's going on. And the Judaizers within the church, they're afraid of that because people are getting more and more upset. And so what they're doing is encouraging their own family within the church to compromise because they're afraid of persecution. That's what's really going on. All right. So now is a good time, I think, to kind of switch gears here. Remember we said we do interpretation to figure out what's going on first century, application for this century. Um, so let's shift gears. In, in the first century, there's this question about who's right, about who's a coward. Right? And I actually think there's a fair amount of that going on in the 21st century. Like, it might, that hasn't gone away, right? That's still a thing. Uh, it seems clear to me that biblical Christians, hopefully that's us, are under more and more pressure to to conform to the expectations of our, of our culture and broader society. Right? You guys feel that? Yeah. So that's there. And for the record, I always need to say this, but I, I do, I need to say it. For the record, what we're experiencing doesn't even begin to approach what was happening in Galatia. Okay? And don't, don't get it twisted. Okay? So please don't start drawing false parallels. And they go, oh yeah, we're just like them. No, we're not. In fact, is we are still in a time and place where on balance we are more advantaged by being people of faith and we are disadvantaged, okay? So please, I'm trying not to be mean, please spare me the dramatics and the histrionics about how we're all being horribly persecuted and we're probably gonna all be locked up any minute now, okay? That's silly and it's fear-mongering. And I hope you can see this. This is an aside, so I'll just come over here to tell you at the side. When people tell you that things are worse than they really are, they are doing that in order to manipulate you to their own ends. Always. Like, like that's a rule, okay? So when people are overstating what we're facing, that should be a big flag. We're like, no, 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 that person's manipulating me. I'm not, I'm not going to fall for it, guys. Vineyard, don't fall for it. But all that said, there has been a significant shift, and we can feel it, and there's growing pressure to compromise. And so we, as God's people, we have to face that with courage. We have to face it with integrity. We have to resist the temptation to be people pleasers, that whole thing. So what I'm saying is we have to be brave. We have to have courage. And so it's worth carefully considering what it means to be courageous in this moment, because if we're going to have the courage to not compromise biblical morality, then we need to make sure that we're doing that with biblical courage. So I'll put it another way. Make sure you get this. If we refuse to let our culture define morality for us, then we should also refuse to let our culture define courage for us. Because I think that's happening. I think um, false ideas of what it really means to be brave in this context is being pressed upon us, and I don't think it's right. I don't think it's 
biblical. Here's what I think. I think a lot of good church folks are under the impression that being brave means being loud and angry and vicious and accusatory and insistent and stubborn and unyielding. And the implication in that, here's what shape this takes, the implication then is that if you, as a Christian, aren't currently stomping and screaming about the state of things in the world, then you aren't really taking a stand. That's wrong. I'm going to read you a quote here from Russell Moore. Really good book called The Courage to Stand. It's long, I know, but it's good. It's good. So stick with it. We must find the courage to stand. But even that language of standing can deceive us. We talk about standing for what we believe in, and what we mean is usually a pose of confidence, like leadership coaches who tell their clients to project strength through body language, some cases to literally place their hands on their hips like a superhero. But a biblical stance of glory is not that, but hands pinned down outside of our power as we're crucified. What it means to stand for Christ is not, it turns out, to evacuate our internal lives of all fear or to humiliate our enemies with incontrovertible winning, but instead to live out in our very lives the drama of the cross. That means that courage does not come from matching our world's power and wisdom with more of our own, but instead by being led where we do not want to go. John 21, 18. The courage to stand is the courage to be crucified. The problem is that much of what is actually defined as courage in Scripture, i.e. the bridling of the passions, kindness, humility, is seen as timidity or fear. While many who feel themselves courageous because they tell it like it is are really just seeking to be part of their protective tribes even when those tribes are boisterous and angry. They may feel that they stand for something, but this is not courage if courage is defined by Christ. To follow the way of Christ is to stand for the things that matter. And those things are not just the right side on issues or the right side on doctrines, but conformity with Christ in terms of the affections, the experiential lived reality of walking with Jesus Courage is needed to live out a quiet, ordinary life with integrity and with love. So what's happening is Paul's opponents are being loud and insistent and demanding. And by some definitions, to people maybe on the outside looking in, they would seem to be the brave ones. But really, and Paul makes it very clear, we read it, they're the ones who are being completely controlled by fear. They're afraid. That's why they're acting that way. They're scared. Guys, blustery doesn't mean brave. Loud and demanding doesn't mean brave. Insistent and stubborn and unyielding doesn't mean brave. It usually just means terrified. That's the reality. And in our context, in, in this moment... Those who would, in Jesus' name, unfortunately, compel you to be angry and to be accusatory 
those who would compel you that we defend Jesus with literal guns or with, with hatred of the people who are persecuting us or by slandering our enemies. Those people, and don't miss it, they are waving the Jesus flag and all the while they are rejecting outright the way of Jesus. The way of the cross is love of enemy. It is blessings for those who curse us. It is prayer for those who persecute us. It is kindness shown to those who are attacking us. The people saying that we must abandon the way of Jesus in defense of Jesus, those are modern day Judaizers. And the fact is, they're also just afraid of persecution. And they're willing to be people pleasers to protect themselves. And they've created quite a current to pull you in with them. Jesus did not conquer our enemy and reclaim this world by having the biggest guns or the loudest mouth. He did it by suffering well. It was by suffering, it was by the cross that he conquered, that he was glorified, that he overcame. Hebrews 2, 9 and 10, but we do see Jesus made lower than the angels for a short time so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone. And what was the result of that? He was crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death. Verse 10, for in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, which is a way of saying Christ has all power and authority, period, always, all of it. The source of every drop of it, always. And yet it was appropriate for him to be made the pioneer of our salvation and made perfect through sufferings. In the way of Jesus, hear me on this, very important tough pill to swallow. In the way of Jesus, we take a stand by laying ourselves down in service to others. We take a stand by laying ourselves down. We don't win by conquering people. It's not how you win. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We don't win by conquering people. We win by loving them. That's what Jesus did. He died for them. And that is actually what turned the entire world upside down. That is what turned the Roman Empire upside down. Did you guys know that's how this works? Christians who loved their persecutors in spite of the fact that they were being attacked by them, that's how everything changed. Not only did Christians love and pray for their oppressors in the Roman Empire, they cared for the sick. So in the Roman Empire, when Romans were sick, they were given up on and left to die, and the Christians went and found them and cared for them themselves. When they had communicable diseases and no one would touch them, the Christians would go get the ones who were oppressing them, and they would care for their sick. The other thing that they would do is they would, they would find their abandoned children. At the time, there wasn't really a, a reliable or safe form of abortion, and the way people did that is they would give birth to that child. And this happened, by the way, unfortunately, to hundreds of thousands of Roman children. 
they were, it was called exposure, they were abandoned. They were literally put in the trash or put out and abandoned in a place so that they would die by exposure so the parents wouldn't be bothered. Christians went digging through the trash, finding the children, raising them themselves. That's what transformed the Roman Empire. That's what their opponents found irresistible and undeniable. They went the way of Jesus. They served the people who were attacking them. That's how they overcame. Does this make sense? All right, so Jacob, I think, is going to come up, help me wrap this thing up. I want to go back to our text here. I just want to remind you, I said early that, that these, these Christians, they likely had no idea that they were like a million miles off track. Um, they didn't decide to abandon the way of Jesus. They thought that what they were doing was actually right and correct and good. Like, oh, we'll just go along to get along. In reality, they were missing the point entirely. Guys, there's a very real way in which I think entirely sincere Christians are missing the point entirely, and I don't think they even know. In our just rabidly politicized, deeply cynical environment, which, by the way, is getting more and more polarized and contentious every single day, the church is getting caught up in that swirl. More and more Christians are getting caught up in that anger and vitriol. They're getting caught up in it, abandoning the way of Jesus, and by and large, I don't think they even realize it. So here's what's going on in the extreme. Increasingly, we have liberal Christians who are just capitulating to culture, and they're abandoning the clear teachings of Scripture. They're saying, uh, these verses, these ideas, these values, um, they're not consistent with what society would want for us, so we're going to highlight all those with black marker. We're just going to move on from those texts, okay? That's happening on one extreme. On the other extreme, we've got Christian nationalists who are calling the church to arms, who are fear-mongering about persecution, who are gearing up, literally and figuratively, gearing up for a fight. And bottom line, hear me, both sides are people-pleasing. Both sides are afraid of persecution. Both sides are being cowards. And hear me, I'm not, I'm not just like bouncing over to this in order to hop on one of my soapboxes. I'm really not. I believe that our modern day equivalent of a Judaizer is people in our context who weaponize Christian ideas to attack their political opponents and justify their rage. And they're colonizing the church in the process. So, hear me church, here's what I'm saying. Don't fall for either. Don't fall for either. Both are abandoning the way of Jesus. Let's go the actual way of Jesus. The actual way of Jesus. Paul summarizes it really, really well at the end of his first letter to the Corinthians. He said this, be alert, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong, do everything in love. In other words, refuse to compromise, 
and refuse to attack. Do you hear it? Refuse to compromise and refuse to attack. Stand firm and if need be, suffer well. And if we do, we will overcome because that's the way of the cross. God's victory has always been about being last of all and servant of all. We will not overcome any other way. We will not join God in the renewal of all things any other way. Because as we said all along the way, you cannot walk with Jesus without loving your neighbor. And Jesus made it unfortunately crystal clear that the people who oppose you and challenge you and pressure you They're your neighbor. They're your neighbor. We cannot walk with Jesus without loving our neighbors. And again, kind of bottom line, how are they going to know we're Christians? It's by our love, right? They will know we are Christians by our love. Please do not abandon the way of Jesus in defense of Jesus. It's missing the forest for the trees. Refuse to compromise. Refuse to attack.